I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. This episode contains descriptions of violence, war, and trauma. Please take care when listening. A small 25-year-old woman glances nervously at her mother and her toddler son squeezed with her in the back seat of the taxi when the car comes to a standstill. They need to make it to the Kabul airport by sunrise. They've been inching their way through traffic when they're stopped on the road by Taliban soldiers at a checkpoint. One of them motions to the driver to roll down the window. Her 18-year-old nephew sits in the front passenger seat. The soldier is asking where they're going. Who are these people in the car? She lets her nephew do the talking, keeps her gaze down, not making eye contact. She's erased all the photos from her phone that might hint at what she does for work. If they discover who she is, she's terrified of what they might do. They have no idea that this woman, whose face is partially concealed with a headscarf, was part of a secret elite unit of Afghan fighters working with American special forces. From a country where women and girls risk being killed just for going to school, this is a soldier who dropped out of helicopters, carried an M4 carbine, and stood up to the Taliban. Her comrades in arms, the American women who trained and served with her, will be the ones to make sure she escapes this perilous situation. But the struggle doesn't end there. She's going to need an army of women to make it as a single mother in the U.S. From KSL Podcasts, I'm Andrea Smartin, and this is Stranger Becomes Neighbor, Episode 3, Sisterhood of Embroidery, and artillery. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not sure what I pictured when I imagined a woman in the Afghan army, but I would never guess it about Seema. She doesn't want to use her last name to protect her family still in Afghanistan. When I met Seema in the fall of 2021, she'd been living in a hotel south of Salt Lake City on the edge of a strip mall for several weeks, along with her son and nephew. She was wearing a mustard yellow headscarf draped loosely around her slight shoulders. She has a way of casting her dark eyes down and to the side. The word that comes to mind is demure. She tells her story while her one-and-a-half-year-old son sleeps in a bed behind her. Seema was born in 1996, just a few years before the Americans invaded Afghanistan. 
She has no memory of the Taliban being in power. Her parents were not well-educated. Her mother never learned to read or write. But as part of a new generation liberated from the Taliban, Seema and her siblings were encouraged to go to school. She wanted to study art. I was interested in enrolling in fine arts, and if not, my second choice was in the military. Based on her test scores, she got her second choice and joined the Afghan army. Her mother supported her decision and was proud of her. Seema's father, who died of a heart attack when she was young, had served in the military. She trained in Turkey for six months, where she found out about an opportunity to work with American special forces. When I went to the special military forces, I was very interested and left my task. Seema became a member of an elite unit of specially trained Afghan women soldiers, known as the Female Tactical Platoon. We had night operations where we went with American forces and our own Afghan forces. These operations involved dropping into enemy territory, usually targets like the Taliban, under cover of darkness, approaching homes or compounds in secret, and separating the men from the women and children. Our duty was to search for Taliban women and separate them, investigate them. In Afghanistan, because of cultural and religious norms, there are taboos around men and women touching each other or being in mixed company. So checking a woman for weapons poses a challenge. Male soldiers just entering a room of women risks scaring and offending them. So the military started employing women for these missions. The missions were inherently dangerous. Approaching the enemy in their homes could turn deadly if targets decided to fight back. And anyone could be hiding weapons or suicide vests. But Seema says it was also risky if your neighbor found out what you did for work. We could not tell anyone that we are soldiers. In some provinces, she heard that women soldiers were assassinated. After she came to the U.S., she heard about one colleague who did not make it out during the evacuation. We saw on Facebook that a female soldier was shot in Ghul province while that woman was eight months pregnant and had a two-year-old child. I looked this up later. I did find several articles about a woman who was eight months pregnant killed in her home in front of her child. The articles identified her as a police officer. There was no mention of military service, but that part may not have been publicly known, since those working with Americans tried to keep it a secret. I asked Seema why she would want to be in the military if it's so dangerous. We were doing our duty with great interest and enthusiasm, not knowing that this system will fail one day. We were trying to serve our people and country. Seema loved her work. She was proud to be fighting for her country. And while she was on the job, she also fell in love with a fellow Afghan soldier. In a photo together, his arm is draped over her shoulder. Seema wears big, white-rimmed sunglasses. He gazes into the camera with dark, sensitive eyes. The two of them look glamorous, young, unstoppable. In the summer of 2019, they were married. Just a few weeks later, they found out she was pregnant. But even as the couple looked forward to their new life with a baby, violence was growing. In September 2019, peace talks between the U.S. and the Taliban were stalled as elections approached. The Taliban warned that campaign events and polling stations would be targets of attacks. It was enough to scare many people away from voting. After Seema found out she was pregnant, she stopped going on dangerous missions. But her husband continued to work. When we went to carry out operations during our duty, we saw many young people being killed in front of our eyes. And we said that they have their own families, wives and children. What will happen to them? Not knowing that one day I will lose the dearest person in my life. Her husband was killed in an explosion. He never got to meet his son. Seema was on her own, responsible for supporting her family. She continued to work with the U.S. military on less dangerous missions, 
She worked on training other recruits and administrative tasks. When the Taliban suddenly took control in August 2021, Seema's baby was more than a year old. We received a message at night that you should arrive at the airport gate at sunrise. U.S. soldiers on the other side of the world were frantically making calls and texts to people on the ground to get Seema out. She hoped to escape with her son and her mother. But she also brought her 18-year-old nephew to the airport so the Taliban wouldn't question or harass her for traveling without male supervision. When we went and arrived at the gate at sunrise, they did not let us in because it was so crowded. We suffered a lot. We would approach the gate. They would shoot in the air and throw tear gas. I was afraid that my son would lose his hearing and develop nerve problems because he was too young. We were sitting on the ground and they were shooting in the air. I was holding my son's ears so that the loud noise could not endanger his ears and his brain. But her comrades from the U.S. military were persistent. After two days of waiting, in the early morning hours, an American soldier appeared at the gate and signaled to Sima to let them through. We entered the gate, but the other American soldiers did not understand that we were soldiers. They thought we were just like other normal people who had forced their way in. So they kicked us out of the other gate. After all that, they were spit out again, only to fight through the crowds the wrong direction. As much as we struggled to enter the field, we struggled twice as much to get out. They had more waiting to do, and Sima did not dare let herself sleep. I did not sleep for two days and nights. My son was sleeping in my arms, and I was thirsty. I was afraid that if I fell asleep, my son would fall from my arms. Sima heard again from her U.S. contacts. Someone would escort them at the gate. She went with some of her female colleagues, her son and her nephew, but her mother could not go on. I asked her to move to the gate, but she refused and told me that she can go because she will get trampled in the crowd. Sima made it inside the airport with her nephew and son, and she waited for her mother hoping she would join them. Maybe she could go through the gate, but because she was alone and sick, it was hard for her. Unfortunately, she could not get in. That's when a bomb detonated outside the airport. Seema's mother was not close enough to the bomb for it to kill her, but she was knocked to the ground. Whether it was from the blast itself or the panicked crowds, it's not clear. She took a taxi to a hospital and was treated for injuries to her legs. She would be okay. But on the airport tarmac, Seema had to make the difficult decision to get on the plane without her mother. While others celebrated, Seema says she felt a great loss. I left Afghanistan a lot and I miss Afghanistan very much. When I left Afghanistan, I was very sad, unlike many who were happy. Sima had proudly served her country for six years. She did not want to abandon it. But I had to leave Afghanistan. As the plane lifted, she handed her son to her nephew and was finally able to sleep. From Kabul, they went to Qatar, to Washington, to Dallas, to a military base in Virginia, where they stayed for a month. Seema was asked where she would like to live. She wanted to stay in Virginia, where there were other people in the military that she knew. But the State Department had another idea. They said that we have chosen Utah for you. Seema knew nothing about Utah, didn't know a soul that lived there. But as it turns out, someone was looking out for Seema from afar. An athletic, blonde-haired, blue-eyed young woman, Becca Moss, graduated from high school in St. Louis, Missouri, knowing she wanted to make a difference in the world. The question was, should she choose the Peace Corps or the military? And I was like, well, probably the military can make a bigger difference because they have a lot more power and money. 
it didn't hurt that the military also helped pay her way through college. She chose to focus on field artillery, but she was looking for something beyond cannons, rockets, and missiles. It was a cool, different thing to do for a woman, and, like, there weren't a lot of women in it. I knew I could excel being a woman in it. And it was a good learning experience, but it wasn't necessarily, like, what I had signed up for the military to do. So when Becca found out about something called the Cultural Support Team, she jumped at the chance. Doing Cultural Support Team was, like, the best thing I could have done. Members of the Cultural Support Team, or CSTs, are female officers who work with the Army's Special Forces. It's a program created because the military recognized that it could be more effective if women were interacting with women on dangerous missions in Afghanistan. Becca knew a little about it, at least as much as you can glean from a book. I read Ashley's War, which is a book about a CSD that was killed over in Afghanistan. Um, It was a very impactful book. Reading Ashley's War gave me some insight into Becca's experience. These women trained hard at an accelerated pace to be part of an elite unit going on missions previously open only to men. It was heartbreaking, even knowing ahead of time that the protagonist in the book, Ashley, was going to die. She hid the risks from her parents so they didn't see it coming. She was young, ambitious, and tenacious, eager to break new ground, just like Becca. For these women in the armed forces, it was a rare chance to go on special operations in the field and push themselves to the limit. Most of us reading this book would focus on the loss of a young woman's life. But Becca homed in on something else. She saw a way she could make a difference. The selection process was really hard. Like, it wasn't fun, which was great because I wanted a challenge. CSTs are the American counterpart to the female tactical platoon the Afghan women working with U.S. Special Forces. That was the role Seema was playing. They worked closely together. Becca says they were from different worlds with different reasons for being there. And at first, it was a challenge. But Becca was in it for the challenge. What I expected is different from what they expected, you know? We're just different cultures. We're different people. And being able to work with those women specifically who are generally seen as oppressed that are kicking ass was like the coolest thing ever. When you say kicking ass, like what? Like what were they doing? (laughs) I mean, like these girls are 100 pounds sopping wet and they're running in full combat load, which is 20 to 50 pounds and carrying guns and like, you know, kicking down doors and doing very hard, scary things. And especially for them, like they're in their own country. They don't want the Al-Qaeda or Taliban or the Haqqani or whatever terrorist organization is coming. Like they want a free Afghanistan and they're willing to fight for it, which is pretty amazing. I don't think any of us can even understand that. Like, I don't think I can understand that because I've never had to fight for freedom in my life, like ever. But I think it's really cool to see women who are generally seen as a little less than equal, just defy the norm and do awesome things. And she says she got to know her colleagues on another level when they let their hair down. Becca remembers a moment shortly after she arrived. It was February 2020, Valentine's Day. Just being a woman, I think, is like super powerful because you can go to their dance parties and they all take their hijabs off and everyone just like, you know, is dancing and drinking lemonade and celebrating Valentine's Day, which is You know, we're all female special operations soldiers at this time, and then we're dancing to Mujda and (laughs) throwing hearts in the air, which is kind of fun. By the time Becca was deployed in Afghanistan, Seema was pregnant, and Becca met her while training Afghan women. Seema helped out with role-playing exercises. They worked together during the day, but at night, they slept in separate places. At night, I'd sit there and watch movies and make friendship bracelets. Like, I'm 26 in Afghanistan, Uh making friendship bracelets for my Afghan female soldiers that I'm training. But everybody wants a friendship bracelet, so. When Seema moved to the U.S., Becca would use that same friendship bracelet thread to embroider colorful designs onto handkerchiefs, stitch Seema's initials onto them, and send them in the mail. For Becca, it was the relationships with her colleagues like Seema that made the experience meaningful. She says bonds forged in the military are for life. 
I mean, the military is a family, no matter how you spin it. I mean, they serve right side by side, doing the same things. Becca was one member of an unusual family that very few people knew about or could understand. They call themselves Sisters of Service. And the threads that bound these sisters in arms would be crucial when the Americans withdrew and Afghanistan abruptly fell back into the hands of the Taliban. CSTs like Becca were some of the only people who knew just how much danger their Afghan sisters were in. The story of this remarkable sisterhood was a secret until now. It really hasn't been until this past year and knowing that the majority of these women were in the U.S. and were safe that their story could begin to be told. It's a story best told by two women still serving active duty in the military who took on a leadership role when they realized people like Seema needed them. I'll go ahead and go by Ellie. Ellie asked that I not use her real name. And we created this organization in response to our partnered sisters and just for their safety and for our own and just the nature of our work, um, we would like to keep our names removed. I'll go by Leah. The fact that Ellie and Leah don't want their real names used underscores that what they're doing to help their fellow soldiers is entirely a volunteer effort. All the time they've put into this is outside their official duties in the military. The omission of names also reflects just how much danger the Afghan soldiers and their families face. While we were there, the majority of the women would have to show up on post um, or to the military base in their civilian clothes and lie to their neighbors about what exactly it was that they were doing. Just a woman working in the military in Afghanistan itself was progressive, but they had to ultimately be willing to sacrifice everything to do this position. Like they knew they will always be in danger from not only the Taliban or ISIS, but really from just regular people in Afghanistan that don't agree with women working outside the home, let alone working in an elite unit, working alongside American soldiers. That drive is pretty unexplainable. And it's just so inspiring. You can't walk away and leave something behind like that. We will forever care about these women. Ellie and Leah were back home in the U.S. when they started hearing talk from American leaders about pulling out of Afghanistan. As part of peace negotiations between the U.S. and the Taliban in 2019 and 2020, President Trump reduced troop levels in Afghanistan by 7,000. As peace talks increased and the rhetoric of the United States military leaving Afghanistan increased, the Afghan women who we worked alongside started reaching back to whatever CSTs it was that they worked with. Um, Because many of them continued to keep in contact with us after we left Afghanistan to just say like, hey, sister, what's going on? Like, what's going to happen if the United States leaves Afghanistan? Members of the cultural support team didn't know what to tell them. In February 2020, just when Becca and Seema were working together to train the latest recruits, the Trump administration made an agreement with the Taliban to fully withdraw U.S. troops by May 1st, 2021. If the Taliban and the Afghan government live up to their commitments, and they may or they may not, but I think we have a lot of reason why they will. I think they will. Uh, That means that the longest war in American history by far, it's not even close, will be over. Over the course of the Trump administration, troop levels were reduced from 13,000 to 2,500. While Americans were coming home, Ellie, Leah, and the CSTs were starting to realize there was no pathway for the women they had served with to escape. The only option available at that time if these women needed to evacuate or leave the country was through the special immigration visa. And now that was only open to interpreters. Even though the female special operation Afghan unit was directly stood up to assist the U.S. military, they were not hired by the U.S. government. And so they would not qualify for these immigration visas. And therefore, There really was no option for them at that time. While these Afghan soldiers were working with and for Americans, they were technically part of the Afghan army. The cultural support team realized that those in power, the government and the U.S. military, didn't have a plan in place to protect the secret unit of Afghan women that was hidden from the world. Very few people knew the stakes. 
a few of us came together and applied for it anyway and started lobbying to our Congress members that these women have done more in combat than the majority of the special operation U.S. military. And we must continue to stand by their side and say that we'll protect them. In July 2021, President Biden announced at a press conference his plan to follow through on the agreement made under the Trump administration to completely withdraw U.S. troops. We're ending America's longest war. Mr. President, is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Ellie and Leah understood that Americans were leaving, but they did not know that almost overnight, their fellow soldiers would be stranded with the Taliban in power. No one anticipated the speed of the withdrawal as it occurred. And so really the the day it started occurring, um, a chat group stood up of a group of us cultural support team members just figuring out how do we get these women to the airport? Who do we have to reach out to in the military, at the airport, on the ground to get these women out of Afghanistan right now? So Ellie and Leah, along with other CSTs, feeling the weight of the responsibility for a unit of highly threatened soldiers did what they had to do. We're working full-time jobs, staying up all night on these group chats, kind of subbing out like, hey, you get a couple hours, I'm going to step in and talk to this woman and lead her to the airport. They were doing everything they could think of. But after a week and a half, they were exhausted. Leah and I came together one night and we were just like, this, this is getting out of control. Like, we're working through a group chat to a translator, to an Afghan woman, to tell them to get to this spot and then figuring out when they get on a flight. And it was a logistical nightmare um, trying to realize literally where in the world are these women? Like they would get on these flights not knowing where they would be landing. They just knew they were getting out of Afghanistan. And then we would get a text message that says, it's really hot here. I'm in Qatar and a whole bunch of like fire emojis. And we're like, all right, well, we found Nafisa. By this point, they were already burned out. They couldn't keep up this pace. We just kept saying, like, we are currently in the sprint of this, but this is a marathon. And life doesn't start getting easy when they reach American soil. It's really just begun where our organization will start. Somehow, they succeeded in evacuating 43 FTPs and 100 of their family members. But as Ellie says, there was no time to celebrate. That was only the beginning. And then we find out the first woman lands in Washington, D.C. Like, hey, sister, I'm in Washington. Like, spelled totally wrong. We're mad gabbing, trying to guess, like, what? where is she actually? Like, what is she saying that she's in? Send us a photo. Like, what town are you in? I think the message was like, hey, I think I'm in America. We're like, uh, where? Let <laughs> where can we come get you? Like, what happens next? And still no one knew. Kind of in... These continued unknowns is when Lee and I came together and realized the answers aren't coming anytime soon. Like we need to just show these women that we will continue to be at their side amidst all this uncertainty, because really that's the only thing we can promise right now is that no matter what happens, we're gonna be there. And so it was amidst the uncertainty, these volunteers working outside their official capacity in the military, sat down together at Leah's kitchen table to plan their own special operation here on U.S. soil. And we were like, okay, what next? Like, these women are going to need help. You know, we thought the best way to do it would be to match one American woman with one Afghan woman. The Sisters of Service paired up all the Afghan women of the female tactical platoon with American counterparts. But the matchups were made while the FTPs were staying at temporary military camps before anyone knew where they would end up. Seema was the first one to arrive at her destination in Salt Lake City, but her advocate Becca was living 2,000 miles away in Georgia. So she was the first one to resettle out of all of our group of everyone, which I was like, oh crap, like, you know, of course it's Seema, the girl that has a two-year-old and this nephew and she's in Salt Lake City. And I was like, who the heck? No one knows anything in Salt Lake City. Like, everyone I'm friends with is on the East Coast. All the girls we work with are all East Coast. So a little bit of concern because I know nothing. I know there's a lot of Mormons out there. That's, that's all I know about Salt Lake City. 
Becca was texting with Seema every other day, and she contacted her caseworker at the resettlement agency. You know, let them know who I am and be like, you know, I'm her friend. I'm just trying to make sure she's okay. I'm not going to leave you alone, so you might as well just accept that I'm going to be in your life. I don't know. I just wanted to make sure she was okay. You know, like the first night she was here, I don't think they, like, got her food, so I, like, ordered her Indian food from a restaurant. So I was like, well, I'll just order you a bunch of rice and you can eat it for the next few days, I guess. The first priority was finding a babysitter so Seema could attend English classes. Someone in the Sisters of Service had a niece with a friend who had a friend whose name was Annie Pond. So Becca looked over her resume and tried to vet her over a video call. Hopefully you're safe. You sound like a real person. You look like a real person. You seem genuine. So a lot of trust, I guess, in this process. This whole journey has been a bunch of people I don't know. And Annie was the one that has, like, you know, babysat for free, has been truly just an amazing lifesaver. Because she lives 10 minutes away, can come drop of a hat, has two kids on her own, um, understands kind of like what she's going through and it's just like helped so much. When Becca thinks about what has happened since she went to Afghanistan, she sees a theme. I feel like women trust women a lot. You know, doing this um, special operations thing with all women, then training an elite force of women in Afghanistan and then obviously coming to Salt Lake City and of course it's only women that are helping. So it's kind of a cool theme of women being very proactive and on it 100% of the time. And then Becca got a call from another woman wanting to help, Jenny Hua. She's the one I met at the Thanksgiving event, who was introducing volunteers finding bicycles and sewing machines. Turns out Seema was the first of the Afghan arrivals who Jenny met. I asked Nazifa and said, Nazifa, is it okay? Like, if I just go ahead and and help her, is that legal? Like, (laughs) I don't know how this works. Um, I just, I want to help and just want to know how the system goes here. And she's like, yeah, sure. You can be your friend. Go ahead. Jenny called Seema and Seema asked her to talk to her military sponsor, Becca. She was vetting me um, to see, you know, What kind of person are you? Do I want to associate with you? After Jenny got the okay from Becca, she helped Seema move into her new apartment with her nephew, furnish it, find rugs. She invited her over for dinner with her family. And on Halloween, she brought her trick-or-treating. So as I got to know my friend better, um, one day she said, kind of in a personal way, can we get some shoes? We don't have any shoes. And this was like November. So it was getting pretty cold. And she was commuting to an English class um, with her baby on the train. And all she had was like these little slip-on kind of dress shoes. And I was like, oh my goodness, yes, I can get you some shoes. As the two women got to know one another... Seema told Jenny her son was struggling with digestion issues, and he was in pain. As a mother of five, Jenny was able to give her breastfeeding advice. I feel like she's my friend, and I'm her friend, and that we know each other. Yeah, I feel very comfortable with her, and I think she with me, she's told me her stories about her family. I can't fix all of her problems. Like, she wants to bring 20 members of her family here on humanitarian parole, which I did help her to apply for through the legal clinic that took place about a month ago. I can't get those people here for her. She knows that there are some things that are not going to happen magically. But, you know, it's nice to have someone who, at least for her, I think it's nice to have someone who at least cares that she's in that situation and wants to know about it. Meanwhile, Becca told me she was really nervous about Seema out in Utah, and she was stressed about trying to help from so far away. Do you think we've been a welcoming community? I think initially everyone's welcoming, right? Like everyone wants to be the great big idea fairy. Everyone wants to help and like they want to feel like they help these poor refugees and which is like unfortunate because they're not poor refugees they are there because they don't have a choice 
They don't want to be a charity case. They want to be a strong individual like they were in Afghanistan. I think it's really sad to see people not have enough resources initially. But the community has been really great. Meeting Annie and people like Jenny, who's like shown up and like consistently shown up, that's a huge show of character. And that's what people need is somebody who's consistently showing up in their life. What do you think our obligation or our sort of responsibility is to these women who are now in the U.S. from Afghanistan? Um, I think we owe them a lot. I mean, (laughs) I don't know many Americans that are in the military. Like, I have a lot of military friends, but, like, I'm the only person from my high school friends in the military. And, like, these women literally are an anomaly. Like, they're from Afghanistan, against all odds, joined the military, joined the special forces, and then, like, fought for their freedom alongside U.S. soldiers, which is, like, more than 99% of Americans can say. So I think they've sacrificed a lot more for America than most Americans, probably. So... I guess, what do you think your obligation is to somebody that sacrificed something for America? After the break, the women who have been weaving a web around Sima finally meet in person. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes in life, we're faced with tough choices, and the path forward isn't always clear. My first instinct is often to handle it on my own. But I've learned over and over that life goes better when you get help. Whether you're dealing with decisions around career, relationships, or anything else, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence. The benefits are clear. But for me, the hardest part has been taking the steps to fit therapy into my life. So it's really helpful when it's easy to access. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com neighbor today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot neighbor. Seema had been living in Utah for about five months when Becca was finally able to arrange a visit. Becca had a lot going on in her life. She was retiring from the military, applying for jobs, planning her wedding, and she had a half marathon she was running in a week. But she flew out to Utah and rented a place on her own dime to make sure Seema was doing okay. When I show up in the late afternoon, Becca, Seema, and her son are sitting on a big sofa watching music videos. So what have we, we've been watching some music here? We've been um, watching the top hits of Afghanistan. Mujda, we've been watching a lot of Mujda. Mujda, there's a Shabnam So this is a, yeah, this chick's from Tajikistan. And the other girl was from Afghanistan. Becca's drinking wine while Seema and her son sip lemonade and play with almonds. Oh, some Shakira. Yes. You like Shakira? Yes. I do, too. I love Shakira. <laughs> do you like Shakira? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> even Seema's son, who's not even two years old, like Shakira. In the evening, Becca invited the locals in the community who had been helping Seema over for dinner. Come, sit. Hey. What I'm Seema's first American friend, Jenny Hua, is here, along with the woman who's been babysitting her son, Annie Pond. It's the first time they're all meeting each other in person. It's nice to meet everybody in person. <laughs> like, I know I, like, I feel like I know you are. I, Annie and I have FaceTimed a few times, mm-hmm. and we've talked, and we've all talked on the phone. Yeah. On the table is a feast of eggplant, chicken, and lamb, salad, yellow rice, berries, and flatbread. 
and a platter of dates, which is what Seema's son is most interested in. Oh, you found dates? You want the dates? That's that good stuff. Mm, that's cool. Seema can hardly put food in her mouth, occupied as she is by keeping her son from climbing on the table. <laughs> While they eat, they talk about the reason they're here together, how they can help Seema. As government funds start to taper off, she'll have to pay rent. She'll need a job and childcare. She'll want to get a driver's license, but she needs English to do that. She'll need English for everything she wants to do. Becca suggests moving her to Georgia, where some of the other FTPs are in school. She's been in contact with some of the FTPs, and they're worried that Seema is isolated. They're worried about her mental health. With her limited English, it's not clear how much Seema understands from this discussion. Seema's son is fussing, so she moves with him to the living room floor. There's a tension in the room. Here's a table of well-meaning Americans trying to plan her future. People who really want to help. But Seema can't really participate in the discussion. It must be a lonely feeling to be in a crowd, but not be able to express yourself. In the spring of 2022, I visit Seema in her apartment with a translator to find out how she's doing. Seema says some things have gotten easier. She knows where to shop and how to function here. She's working on getting her driver's permit. And she has a job now. She said, if I just start working with Walmart for three weeks. What are you doing at Walmart? The Walmart company. Cashier. She's working as a cashier. How is it? Do you like the work? She said, yes, I like it. I'm just thinking because you worked in the military, which is very different, a risky job, but one that you had a lot of pride, I think, about. She said, yeah, it's completely different for me. In Afghanistan, I was working as a special operation, and here I'm working as a cashier. I just want to do this job because I to improve my language, to find a, a military job in here. You want a military job? Yes. Yeah, she said, I'm trying hard to learn new language. I had online class, and it just finished. I'm waiting for another class to start it, to improve my language and go to the military. I ask her why she took the job. She said, I need to work because everything is really expensive, the rent, the foods, and everything. And I have a child. I need to buy a lot of stuff for him. That's why I need to work. Seema's rent is currently paid for with government funds, but she's very worried about the moment when she'll have to pay for it herself. Rent is $2,000 a month. That might sound high, but these days, that's normal for Salt Lake City. This is why it's been so hard to find affordable housing for this group of arrivals. Resettlement agencies have resorted to putting people in far-flung places. Seema made good money when she was in the military in Afghanistan, enough to support her mother. But here, she doesn't make nearly enough to cover her own expenses, let alone send money home. She isn't even working full-time because she's still nursing. She said in Afghanistan, it was okay. I was working and support my family and my mom, and I was okay over there. But in here, when I'm talking with the people, they give me a lot of stress. And they say, the life is really hard in here. You need to work very hard to support your family. But And she said, yeah, when I'm thinking that how much money I can work in Walmart and in here for rent, for food and for everything. It's a lot of stress and I'm worried about that, how to survive with that money that I'm making. Seema is also worried about her legal status. Just like most of the Afghans who were evacuated in a rush in 2021, she arrived as a humanitarian parolee, a temporary status that allows her to legally live in the U.S. for a limited time. She's not even technically classified as a refugee yet. She has to apply for asylum. And it's not clear what will happen if it doesn't get approved. She said, when I get a lot of stress and the only thing that can help me, I'm just crying. And it's helped me to feel better. You're crying a lot? Seema dabs at her eyes with her headscarf. 
and after a long silence, I ask her if she has people to talk to that make her feel better. And she says yes, her neighbors who are also from Afghanistan, and Becca, and Jenny. She also chats almost every day with other FTPs that she knows on a messenger app. She shows me a picture on her phone, an embroidered design she made for Becca, the Afghan flag overlapping with the American flag, and another project with brightly colored flowers stitched with a J for Jenny. Seema offers us tea and a platter of snacks. She says, sit down, I will bring you guys some tea. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you. I say, no, we need to get going. And she brings it out anyway. She said, please sit down and... I will just try one. Okay. <laughs> While we drink green tea in small cups, Seema says she's worried about her son. He has an ear infection and has been coughing. She wants to take him to the doctor, but she has a classic working parent dilemma. The health clinic is only open when she's working. We talk about how daycare is so expensive. And she says, luckily, DWS, the State Department of Workforce Services, is paying for it. And then she starts laughing. And I'm wondering what's so funny. <laughs> she said, she's funny. She said, I thought uh, I have to ask the DWS, don't pay that uh, money for daycare. Pay that money for me. I don't need to go to Walmart work. I just want to stay home and ha- take care of him and we'll have fun. She said, DWS pay more money than what I make with Walmart. Uh-huh. Probably, yeah. I guess you could call it funny. The state is paying more money for Seema's childcare than she gets in her paycheck. And she thinks of an obvious solution. Just give her the money directly. It strikes me that some of Seema's stresses are particular to refugees, but some are just everyday working American problems, especially if you're a single parent. How is it even possible to work part-time on minimum wage, take care of a young kid, and pay the rent $2,000 a month at that? Even an elite soldier is reduced to tears. What would Seema do without all the support of the women who have mobilized around her, her own personal special operations team. The Sisters of Service have had a front row seat to what this process is like. They've seen what happens to the 43 women and their family members who are now spread out across the U.S. And Ellie says it can be hard to stay positive when they see the struggles their fellow soldiers face just trying to live in America. Here we are. We just worked with these women that are at the highest rung of Afghan society, like they're special operators as Afghan females. And now we're celebrating when they get a job at Starbucks um, because we know how difficult that was for them to figure out the U.S. job application process. And us and the mentors being pretty heartbroken that we had to work so hard just to get them an employment ID so they could get a job at a fast food restaurant. And just knowing all that we can do is meet them where they're at. Each day is a new challenge and how to figure it out together. Ellie knew nothing about the refugee and immigration systems in America when she began. But when she and Leah started Sisters of Service, they put themselves on the front lines. And from what she's seen, Ellie thinks we could do better. This isn't the first time we've brought refugees into our country or withdrew from a war zone. We didn't have to reinvent a wheel here. And so how do we make sure systems can work and not be overwhelmed um, because the people doing the most are getting burnt out? How do you maintain that humanity um, within a broken system over time? Ellie, Leah, Becca, and the Sisters of Service are committed but a small number of people are bearing a lot of the weight of this responsibility. The CSTs and their Afghan sisters are members of a very rare group, and they refuse to leave anyone behind. They may be strong and capable, but they've learned from experience that they have to spread the weight if they're going to be able to continue. They alone cannot provide all the elements of a community. They depend on civilians like Jenny to fill in the gaps. But once the evacuation fades from the public view, for most of us, it's easy to turn away. 
how many are willing and able to run the marathon and not just the sprint? Next time on Stranger Becomes Neighbor, Jenny and Nazifa run up against their limits as the needs of the new arrivals test their capacity. I couldn't sleep all night. I'm like, I just can't believe this is happening. I cannot believe that people are going hungry. So I'm like, how many more people need food today, this week? And I can't get to them by myself. A single thread can only hold so much weight before it breaks. I mean, I've been consistently sick for the last few months. I haven't really felt well. But it was seriously sick, like you were hospitalized, right? Yeah, yeah. I went to three times emergency. Nazifa struggles with her health as public attention for Afghanistan wanes. Asthma is really triggered by how you feel, and I was quite depressed what I was seeing. And a few months later, nobody cared about Afghanistan. The network needs to grow if it's going to be sustainable. Stranger Becomes Neighbor is researched, written, and hosted by me, Andreas Martin. Audio production and sound design by Aaron Mason. Bonus content produced by Nina Ernest. Mixing and mastering by Trent Sell. Executive producer is Cheryl Worsley. My thanks to our editorial team, Amy Donaldson, Dave Colley, Ben Kiebrick, Josh Tilton, Ryan Meeks, Felix Bunnell, and Kellyanne Halverson. Special thanks to Tanya Vea, Stephanie Avis, Candice Madsen, Matt Elgrin, and Toss Patterson. Each week, we are releasing bonus content with extended interviews if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts. For this week's bonus episode, I talked to a U.S. Army veteran, one of the early members of the cultural support team who helped break ground for both American and Afghan women in the military. In our interview, she gets honest about her struggles building trusting relationships with the Afghan women who she trained. Now she feels a personal responsibility to make sure the FTPs who worked alongside U.S. Special Forces are taken care of in America. If you're unable to subscribe and you'd like to support the show, please give us a rating and write a review. It really does help others to discover us. For pictures and more information, find us at StrangerBecomesNeighbor.com. Stranger Becomes Neighbor is a production of KSL Podcasts.